Wells Fargo plans a major retail push in Chicago. And I'll talk with Crane's reporter Brandon Dupre about how the Art Institute is once again under fire over the disputed ownership of artwork. But, you know, they are maintaining their right to the piece. And I think this is where, in, in many ways, the Art Institute is an outlier. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Wednesday, October 4th. You shouldn't have to explain to your bank why your business matters. Wintrust Commercial Banking doesn't rely on clients to educate them. They have dedicated teams of Chicagoland-based experts specializing in a range of industries, allowing them to offer customized solutions. Built in the area for the area, Wintrust offers the tools and support your business needs to thrive in Chicago. Be your bank's top priority at Wintrust Commercial Banking. Meet your future banker at Wintrust.com slash banker. Wintrust products provided by Wintrust Financial Corporation Banks, FDIC, EHL. The Art Institute is once again under fire over the disputed ownership of artwork. Here to talk about that, Crane's reporter, Brandon Dupre. Welcome back to the podcast. Happy to be here. So tell me what is happening at the Art Institute. It seems like just a couple of weeks ago, we heard about this this first wave of it, but now there's kind of a second beat to this. So so catch me up. Sure, yeah. So um, the uh, Manhattan District Attorney's Office, uh, earlier this month, they issued a series of warrants um, for artwork created by the Austrian expressionist Egon Schiele. Um, It's part of sort of an effort in New York uh, by a sort of aggressive attorney's office there seeking, you know, stolen art or, you know, what it deems is art that may have passed through the hands of New York at some point, and they've been very proactive in seeking this out. Toward the end of World War II, one of the Nuremberg prosecutors walked into a newly liberated concentration camp searching for records, for evidence for the upcoming trials, and he was greeted by a former inmate who took him to a remote corner near the electrified fence, and that inmate dropped to his knees and began digging a hole with his bare hands. And at the bottom of the hole were a set of rags, and inside those rags were a group of SS identity cards. He came to his feet. He handed the prosecutor those identity cards, and the prosecutor incredulously looked at him and said, Why? Why did you risk your life saving this evidence? To which he answered without hesitation, because I've been waiting for you. So earlier this month, um, they issued warrants. It was around seven paintings that were eventually returned to the state of New York as as part of this larger investigation. And then three other um, artworks, which were not. Um, Among them was the Art Institute of Chicago's piece by by the Austrian um, entitled The Russian War Prisoner. And so these originally got out of his possession in particular because they were stolen by Nazis during World War II. Is that correct? Yeah. So it, it dates back to World War II. He was an Austrian in concentration camps. He was he was later killed there and his artwork uh, passed on to Fritz Grunbaum, uh, who was a celebrated Jewish art patron and cabaret performer. In January 1941, Fritz Grunbaum was murdered in the Dachau concentration camp. In 1942, his wife, Elizabeth, was deported to a Minsk death camp. 
Before their murders, the Nazis systematically robbed the Grunbaum's belongings, their household furnishings, their jewelry, their clothing, their home. And so he had possession of those during the time, and so therefore his artwork would pass on to the descendants of his family, to his estate. Um, and that's where the battles have sort of taken place in the court over the providence of these, of these pieces. There's been various court rulings throughout the years that sort of go over the providence of these pieces, who owns what. Um, the landmark ruling by the, the Manhattan District Attorney's Office is that these artworks were stolen um, by the Nazis and therefore need to be returned to the estate of Grumbaum. Among them was the Russian of War prisoner. Um, but simultaneously, there's also a court case that's going on with the Art Institute and with this estate. And that is over the same issue, um, but it's sort of a different legal sphere right now. It's dealing with um, sort of the passage of time and, and legal statutes over possession of these sort of items. So in, in some ways, the Art Institute is coming under fire on multiple fronts over the same art piece. Yeah. There is a legal battle with the estate and then also the Manhattan District's attorney office saying, well, we already basically know what happened with this art piece and we need it now and it needs to be returned. And what is the Art Institute's position on this? They maintain it was a legal, legal acquisition and they have lawful possession of the artwork. They added that the pieces, you know, like I said, subject to civil litigation in federal court. But, you know, they are maintaining their right to the piece. And I think um, this is where, in, in many ways, the Art Institute is an outlier. Um, there's been sort of tied in the art community um, an opposition to, you know, museums hanging on to pieces of artwork that have been deemed to be stolen or, you know, maybe were obtained in, in sort of, you know, wrongful ways. And in many ways, the Art Institute is, you know, seen here. You have, you know, other museums across the country, you know, willfully giving over the, their, their artwork, whereas the Art Institute are saying, hey, let's let this play out in court. And, you know, some of the experts I've spoken to, you know, have said it is, you know, strange for the Art Institute to take this position, especially, uh, you know, it's, it's in the face of public opposition and, and public sentiment at the moment. And especially when you have a district attorney's office that have, you know, in their case deemed it, you know, clearly stolen by the Nazis and then later sold, you have the Art Institute to get in. And it's, 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 they're in a tough position where a lot of, you know, artwork, I mean, it costs millions of dollars to obtain these things. It's, it's very difficult. It's an ongoing process. And in some senses, you know, it, it's difficult just to, to hand something back over when it's, you know, a, a piece that's by patrons, you know, but... Like I said, it definitely puts them in a bind of, of sorts against you know, legal opposition, against public sentiment, um, and they've really chosen to, to dig in. And, you know, this is not the first time at all that this has happened. Back in March, Cranes and ProPublica uh, did, uh, did some reporting about some, uh, some Nepalese art that had some maybe questionable acquisition attached to it. So it seems like the, uh, you know, the backlash on it would be so great that the muse that any museum would want to to kind of divest themselves of any piece of art that had kind of a questionable 
or any kind of questionable, you know, acquisition history to it. Um, what is that process like to repatriate art when it when it comes under, you know, if if it is ruled that they do need to return it, what happens after that? Well, it's it's a complicated process. Um, I think you know it involves lawyers, legal fights. But but what you've seen from some of the other museums across the country is that if the museum you know willfully gives it back you know, to the authorities, then you know they don't necessarily have to be strung out in the process. They they can sort of relinquish the ownership and give it back. But again, like I said, you know that's depleting your sort of exhibitions and you know a lot of them have histories with these exhibitions tied to its stories the the nepali art at the art institute you know they have a huge section for that and you know they have a gilt copper necklace that the nepali government has you know sort of demanded that that, that they return and you know it, it's ongoing and it's difficult um but i think you know from the criticism people are just really saying hey give it back what you know what should be rightfully someone else's does any of this present a legal issue for the patron who maybe originally gave it to a museum or once it's handed off to a museum, is it kind of the museum's problem to wrestle with? Yeah. At that point, um, it's the museum's sort of ownership. And I'm speaking strictly of the, the Russian war prisoner here that, that that's under their ownership. They, they, they don't have a price listed for what they, they bought. They bought it from the Chicago art dealer, but it's under their ownership. And until a court rules otherwise, it's for them to do with kind of what they want. And so while this is getting sorted out, what are some of the next steps and what happens to the painting? Does it stay on display? How does that go? It is currently not on display. Um, it, it, it goes on periodically here and there, but it's currently sort of in storage. Their sort of position is we're going to wait and see how this plays out in court. From what the New York officials have told me, it is currently seized in place. And that seizure in place lasts until they can arrange for the drawing in this instance to be transported safely back to New York. So for all intents and purposes, the New York officials intend to bring it back to New York where they can then give it back to the owners. But again, it's entirely unclear on the sort of time of that, when it will take place, when they can get it safely transported. And then also what the Art Institute's position is with current federal litigation ongoing right now. And they, they, they have a court case that's there. And, and from what experts have told me who have been sort of following the case is that right now their argument lies on the passage of time, which is the statutes of limitations here. And that is what I've been told is their best argument in defense to keeping this, that um, you know the family's estate waited too long to bring up um, this litigation. But what I've been told by sort of some experts and industry observers is that if the court, you know, sort of strikes down that argument against the artist into it would then go to who is the lawful owner of this. And you've already seen the New York Manhattan district attorney's office say that, you know, this is the families who have been, it was stolen from the, the Nazis and it's not um, the art institutes. So you, you've seen that cleared out. So it really, it's just dependent on, you know, a judge in this case and, and you know, how that goes. District Attorney Bragg, Special Agent in Charge, Arvello, Colonel Bogdanos, thank you for taking the right side of history. Your accomplishments today are historic. The collaboration between your offices, led by Colonel Bogdanos, is unprecedented anywhere in this country or throughout the world. 
You have solved crimes perpetrated more than eight decades ago. Your recovery of these artworks reminds us once again that history's largest mass murder has too long concealed history's greatest robbery. Because you remember, you will be remembered. Your actions are as righteous as they are courageous. And, I mean, I have to imagine that if the passage of time should stand, that would possibly throw into question some other, you know, some other consternation that has that has come up over different pieces of art, especially when it's like an ancient artifact. Um, it seems like that might throw some of the litigation there into question or, or some of the, you know, efforts to kind of pull back some pieces from various governments. There are. There, there's some other precedents that you know experts have pointed to but everyone i've spoken to is that it's a very technical case the art institute is currently trying to prove and that in, in many's opinion it will probably get struck down and then go to sort of the rightful owner argument that this wasn't stolen and, and in which case i've been told that the art institute would have to prove that they have ownership ownership and this wasn't stolen by the nazis which again is a difficult concept and one you pay lawyers to sort of figure out. <laughs> right. That would be quite a, quite a discovery process in that case for sure. Yes. So what, uh, what's the timeline attached to this? When, when will we, we hear more in this case? We really don't know at this point. It's currently in court. They've just given counter arguments and sort of we're, we're waiting and taking it from there. So we really don't know. All right. Well, I uh, hope you'll visit again when, when, you, when more of this case is settled and talk about how it all shook out. Thanks so much, Brandon. Thank you. Coming up, Alderperson Ray Lopez launches a congressional campaign against U.S. Representative Jesus Chuy Garcia. We'll talk about that and more right after this. Here's a great way to stay in touch with Crane's Daily Gist. Subscribe to the Crane's Morning 10. It's our daily newsletter featuring the 10 biggest stories of the day. To subscribe, visit chicagobusiness.com slash morning 10. This is the Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth. Wells Fargo plans to roughly quadruple its retail presence in the Chicago area in the next several years, opening more than 20 new branches. Crane's John Pletz noted in reporting on the matter that the San Francisco-based bank is the nation's fourth largest, but it's number 12 in Chicago and the suburbs, with seven branches and about 1.5 percent of deposits, according to FDIC data. Wells Fargo said it plans to have at least 30 local branches in the coming years, but didn't specify a timeline for that. Citing the bank, Pletz reported that the first new branch will open downtown next month. It said it also plans to open branches in Bronzeville and Bridgeport. Wells Fargo previously filed plans with the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency to open locations in Old Town and Glencoe, as previously reported by Cranes. But as Pletz also noted, it's a contrarian bet by CEO Charles Scharf. Wells Fargo is opening branches here at a time when others are closing them. Scharf says banks need brick-and-mortar branches as well as mobile apps and other banking tools. But Scharf says banks need brick-and-mortar branches as well as mobile apps and other digital banking tools. 
Platts also reported that Wells Fargo entered the Chicago retail banking market in 2010 through the acquisition of Wachovia. Although it has just a handful of retail branches, the bank has more than 1,000 workers in Chicago, including about 250 to 400 financial advisors. In the Chicago area, its commercial business is larger than its consumer banking share. Platts noted in reporting that Wells Fargo will be facing off with giants like J.P. Morgan Chase, which is the largest player in the market with about 23 percent of deposits, according to FDIC data followed by BMO and Bank of America. It'll also be in greater competition with locally-based banks like Wintrust Financial. Pletz also pointed out in reporting that Wells Fargo is making its push at a time when high interest rates have banks competing aggressively for deposits, and both consumers and businesses are nervous about high borrowing costs. According to Bloomberg's latest Markets Live Pulse survey, office properties in the U.S. are due for a crash, and the commercial real estate market faces at least another nine months of declines. About two-thirds of the 119 respondents surveyed by Bloomberg believe that the U.S. office market will only rebound after a severe collapse. Bloomberg said an even greater majority said that U.S. commercial real estate prices won't hit bottom until the second half of 2024 or later, which could be concerning for the $1.5 trillion of commercial real estate debt that, according to Morgan Stanley, is due before the end of 2025. Refinancing it won't be easy, particularly the roughly 25 percent of commercial property used for office buildings. A Green Street index of commercial property prices has already fallen 16 percent from its peak in March of 2022. Bloomberg also noted in reporting that commercial property values are getting hit hard by the Federal Reserve's aggressive tightening campaign, which lifts a key cost of owning property, which is the expense of financing. But lenders looking to offload their exposure now are finding few options because there aren't many buyers convinced the market is close to a bottom. According to a March report from Goldman Sachs, adding to the trouble is stress among regional banks, which held about 30 percent of office building debt as of 2022. Smaller banks saw their deposits shrink by nearly 2% over the 12 months ended in August, according to the Fed, after Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank collapsed. That translates to less funding for the banks, giving them less capacity to lend. Bloomberg also pointed out that pain from higher interest rates can take years to filter through to owners of U.S. commercial real estate, which Morgan Stanley values at $11 trillion in total. Investors in office buildings, for example, often have long-term fixed-rate financing in place, and their tenants can also be subject to long-term leases. According to research by Moody's Investor Service published in March, it'll take until 2027 for leases that are in place today to roll over to lower revenue expectations. If current trends hold, then revenue by then will be 10 percent lower than it is now. Crane's Danny Ecker reported that the owner of Oak Brook Center is cashing out with a large profit on the Chicago area's second largest mall, taking out a massive new loan that shows the strength of the West Suburban property. Ecker reported, citing a Fitch Ratings report, that Brookfield Properties is expected to close next month on a $700 million mortgage 
tied to the 2.2 million square foot mall. The new loan will allow Toronto-based Brookfield to pay off a $475 million mortgage that it took out on the property in late 2020 and pocket $220 million in equity, according to the report. The refinancing stands out at a time when higher interest rates and banks tightening up lending have made it difficult for commercial landlords to pay off maturing debt. That's especially true for big retail properties, which are grappling with more people shopping online, even as COVID-19 has waned at various points, which has helped boost foot traffic. But Ecker points out that Oakbrook Center isn't just any big retail property. The mall has seen dramatic new investments over the past decade under previous owner GGP as well as Brookfield, which took control of the mall through its 2018 GGP acquisition, making it an example of the way large malls are being reinvented to cater to the post-pandemic world. Brookfield has put about $90 million into the property since 2015 on things like common area improvements, the build-out of a food hall, a parking deck renovation, and updates to the mall's two AMC theaters, according to Fitch. Bloomberg, which today owns the retail property through a joint venture with an entity that includes the California Public Employees Retirement System, is also spending $177 million redeveloping the big box stores at the mall vacated by Sears and Lord & Taylor. The former department stores are being converted into smaller retail spaces for tenants including L.L. Bean, Lifetime Fitness, R.H. Gallery, and Sony Wonderverse, also according to Fitch. Ecker also noted in reporting that the Fitch report showed that tenants at the mall combined for $971 million in sales last year, compared with a pre-pandemic total of $806 million in sales in 2019. Not including the separately owned Macy's store, the mall is 88.2% leased today by 220 tenants, up from 82.3% when Brookfield refinanced in 2020. Oakbrook Center generated net operating income of $76.4 million last year, up from a $66.1 million pre-pandemic total in 2019. The mall was appraised by Cushman and Wakefield in August at just more than $1.7 billion, the report said, giving Brookfield a relatively low loan-to-value ratio of 41.7%. Brookfield in 2021 also intended to pursue a major makeover of the Water Tower Place Mall on the Mag Mile downtown after the loss of anchor tenant Macy's, but the owner ultimately decided to surrender the property to its lender last year. Crane's Justin Lawrence reported that for the first time since he was elected in 2018, U.S. Representative Jesus Chuy Garcia will face a Democratic primary challenger in his re-election bid. The challenge will come from his political right as Alderperson Raymond Lopez of the 15th Ward, a relatively conservative member of the city council and vocal advocate for Chicago police officers, launched his campaign on Tuesday. Garcia has maintained a stronghold on the 4th Congressional District since first being elected in 2018, developing a national reputation as a member of the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. Lawrence noted in reporting that both Garcia and Lopez waged campaigns for Chicago mayor, but Lopez dropped out to endorse Willie Wilson rather than filing nominating petitions. And Garcia finished fourth in the primary after a sluggish campaign that never gained traction as then-candidate Brandon Johnson captured the progressive left to eventually become mayor. 
But as Lawrence also noted in reporting, Garcia has not faced a primary congressional challenge and has easily swatted away Republican opponents since being elected. In a statement, Garcia's campaign manager, Manny Diaz, said, quote, Lopez's latest run for a new office is nothing more than an attention-grabbing stunt. Diaz also sought to tie Lopez to indicted former alderperson Ed Burke, a sign that the primary campaign could be contentious. However, Lawrence noted in reporting that Lopez was a political protege of Burke, but has not been associated with any of the corruption charges that Burke will face in a trial later this year. Garcia's ties to disgraced FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried came up during his own mayoral campaign. Garcia was forced to return a $2,900 campaign contribution from Bankman-Fried and also benefited from over $200,000 that a Bankman-Fried political action committee spent on Garcia's behalf. Lopez, who has represented portions of Englewood, Back of the Yards, and Gage Park since being elected in 2015, elevated his profile as a thorn in the side of former Mayor Lori Lightfoot, Lawrence noted, often seeking to block her agenda with parliamentary maneuvers on the city council floor. He's been a fixture on Fox News criticizing local Democrats for a perceived failure to address violent crime and Chicago's welcoming city ordinance amid a wave of asylum seekers that have been bused to the city over the last 13 months. That's Crane's Daily Just for now. Check in on our continuous news feed at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to today's guest, Crane's reporter, Brandon Dupre. You can follow all of our conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your audio on demand. Don't forget to subscribe and please rate and review Crane's Daily Gist. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.